let's dig in here. We're picking back up at 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. John continues and writes, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because, and this is why it's true, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. But how many of us feel like that? How many of us wake up with that actual belief? We read it and we go, it's true. I read it and I, I can say it to you this morning, but how many times do I wake up and I'm not, I don't actually believe it because my mood would tend to indicate otherwise. But there's a phrase here that caught my eye. He says at the end of verse eight, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Jesus came on the heels of John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has not fully come, but it's as close as your hand is to your face. The light is already shining and you and I might scratch our spiritual heads and go, the light's shining? It seems like it's getting darker, Jake. Disciples of Jesus, we know our heavenly father's command. And this is what John is writing about to the church. It's nothing new. The command is not a new thing. It shouldn't be new to those of us who've been born again. It's as ancient as David, I'm sorry, ancient as Moses, more ancient than David, and Jesus confirmed this word, this old commandment, and he fulfilled it in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, quoting out of Deuteronomy 6, 5. Kids, my kids, you know this one, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How come I'm the only one doing the hand motions here? <laughs> and Jesus then said in Matthew 22, and the second is like it. Quoting out of Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus says in Matthew 24, 11, because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. The love is directly connected to lawfulness. And our pastor here taught this a while back, and it's simple yet profound. We think love, we, we do not usually connotate law, lawfulness with love, to be law-abiding. That's pragmatic. You go, you know, it's textbook. You, you follow the book. But as I, I shared last week, kind of posed to us, does our faith look like a textbook or more like a love letter. When Rick taught through this, he, he titled these love letters because truly these were letters of love from the Apostle John much later in his life. And the reason he wrote with such fond love towards the church was because he knew practically through experience rooted in God's word, the love of God, who is Jesus Christ. So this word and practice of love wasn't born. It came from the beginning. You see that here in verse seven. Which you have had from the beginning. The, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 1. 
But this old commandment is God's word. And the word is Jesus, John 1, 14. Now, he writes to the church, so they already had a concept, a, a base understanding of what God's word was better than John the Baptist's contemporaries. When they heard love, they went back to the law of Moses, right? But where the law kills, grace and truth are revealed in Jesus. Love edifies. Love builds up. And love, again, is not a fact. It's not a feeling. It is a person, Jesus, who is the Christ. John says this old commandment is yet new because, remember, don't shoot the messenger, John is just a mailman. He's just putting the, the letter in the mailbox. He didn't write this letter, you think. Yes, he did. No, the letter was dictated to him and through him. He just wrote down like a scribe what was being told. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And we could stop and go, well, we know that, Jesus, right? Leviticus 19, 18. He doesn't stop there. He says, even as I have loved you. And I shared that with my kids this last week. You know, it's, it's interesting going through John's first letter while he calls the church little children. And when I'm talking with my kids, I'm, I'm <laughs> it's so funny. Les has said it many times. Those of us who have to study and preach this inevitably have to be the first consumer of what we're sharing with everyone else. And sharing this with my kids, understandably, they don't always get along. I, Lord knows I didn't always get along with my brother. I was always right, but we were always at odds. <laughs> I love you, Ty. But Jesus goes on and says in verse 35, by this, by what? This level of love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By what? By this love. What love? When we love each other as Jesus has loved us, which goes beyond love your neighbor as yourself. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's how can I sacrifice of myself for you? That's a supernatural love that this world can't wrap its head around, put its finger on, reproduce, recreate. That's a love that is only supernaturally born out of Jesus in our lives. So when we think the word new, he says here in verse eight, a new commandment, the word new is not what you and I would normally think. The word new here is not newborn, which is usually where we go, brand new. Newborn, okay? Um, that word in the Greek is neos. John uses a different word and it's kainos, not neos, kainos, which means fresh. So it's new, it's new in that it's always fresh, but it's not new in that it's always been. Like he said, since the beginning, in the beginning, from the beginning. The difference in these new loves, if you will, is like when I first came, finally came around and realized dating Cam that I loved her. I had resisted it. I won't get into the story. My wife will thank me, <laughs> partly because it's two hours in and of itself. But when I finally came to grips and went, I love her, that was new. Truly, it was a, it was a revelation. I'm like, I actually love her. Wow. It's like when 
two people, quote, fall in love, which is an interesting euphemism. It's not an accident. Versus those who have been in love. Being born again versus knowing Jesus for years. Both are precious. Both are significant. And you cannot have one without the other. You can't know Jesus for years without first having been born again. It's kind of like the morning sun versus the midday summer sun. This new love. When the morning first rises or when this new love first rises, it reveals what's previously been hidden in the dark. So those of us who step into the light, become children of light, we're born again, we see Jesus for the first time as our Lord and Savior. It's, it's awe-inspiring. It's like morning light. Everything that was covered in darkness now begins to open up and we start to see what we couldn't see before. But as his love continues to rise in us, it gets brighter and brighter. Here's that song again. Leading up to a full day. And we see more and more as his love continues to rise in us like the rising of the sun until his loving light is as bright as the sun on a midsummer's day. And those of you who have been born in or grew up in a hot place, this means a lot. I have not been a morning person, although as I get older, that's beginning to change. And when I do get up before the sun is up, which is easier in the winter hours than it is the summer, I get up and I look and it's dark and you're just kind of groggy and you start to make the coffee or get a glass of water. But when that sun, when our sun up here in the Northwest, especially in the dark winter dreary days, starts to break and crest, it lights things up and it's beautiful. It literally feel, fills us with hope. You know what season you're living in up in the Northwest? Like you go in the grocery store, you know what time of year it is based on how people are acting, right? Everyone's like, you know it's winter time. When everyone comes in and they're chipper, you're like, oh, it must be summertime. <laughs> That's the effect that sunlight has on us. But even more so, it's a beautiful picture of the effect that God's love has in us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. That's when we first come to Christ. And even now, those of us who've been walking with Jesus for decades, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Abide is a word we see over and over. We see fellowship, the word fellowship come up four times throughout John's first letter. But abide comes up 26 times. When you think fellowship, think family. When you think of family, think abiding, being together. John is writing to the ecclesia. Those, plural, called out of this present darkness out of the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light. Look at, verse, look at verse nine with me. John goes on and says, the one who says he is in the light 
yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm going to say something that's simple, but I want us to consider it. Hatred blinds us to love. If you have hatred in your heart, it will blind you to love. John wrote in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. He also wrote in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light. God is light. God is love. And so if there's hatred in us, what does that say about where God is in us? If God is light, which is synonymous with love, then what does that say about the light that's in us? Therefore, to have hatred is to walk outside the light of God's love. We begin to grow dull of seeing, dull of hearing. I have experienced it in my own life without even realizing it as you, as you begin to get resentful towards someone or something. Bitterness starts to take hold. And it's really hard not to be bitter and not hateful. And when that happens, we can't see each other as children of light because we're not walking in the light. And that comes out of a critical spirit. We live in a hypercritical society now. You see it especially in social media. People, things, that people, things that people wouldn't feel bold enough to say to your face, they plaster all over the billboard of social media. And when we're critical and we're scrutinizing for the sake of seeing flaws in each other, we can't see each other as God sees us. I'll just say this out of personal experience. If there's someone in your life that you're struggling to love, maybe you don't have hatred towards them, but if you're struggling to love them, pray for them. And when I say pray for them, don't pray that God would fix them. Pray blessing for them. And it's amazing how his love will begin to shed light like a new morning on your heart and in your mind. And like our, our brother and Pastor Les said, thankfulness for the people. That's another thing. Might be hard, but it's okay. I've, I've learned this from my wife. <clears throat> I, I tend to be a guy without guile, as it's been said. And <laughs> I've teased my wife. I go, she fakes it till she makes it. But what I've learned from her is sometimes, many times, and this is so practical in everyday life, sometimes we need to do things that we don't feel like doing. But the more we do things that we don't feel like doing, because it's the right thing to do, it will right us. Are there people in your life that you need to be praying for? And when I say pray, I mean pray blessing on. Thank God for, and not in a cynical, facetious way. You and I can be sarcastic with each other, but think about this. If that person is someone that God loves so much that he came and died for them, does he find it humorous when we're sarcastic in a slanderous way towards them? If someone came to me and started speaking in a sarcastic, cynical way about my son or my daughter, I wouldn't find it funny. We see that so much in this culture. We're called to 
to not be of this world, but by the renewing of our mind, be transformed into the image of the one who made us born again. So there are a lot of folks who say they love Jesus, but hate his church. And what troubles me is I see that more and more among people, my, again, my generation and younger. It's, it's at work, no matter how old or young we are, but I see it growing in a lot of folks who say they have no qualm with Jesus, but they got conflict with Christians. It's impossible to say we love Jesus and hate the people he loves. People can't say that they love me and then hate my wife. I've said this before, but I wanna say it again. Not because there's something special about us, but what it reveals is his heart. How can I say I love him and hate the people, his bride? The Bible says the church is his bride. How can we love Jesus but hate his people? Now, Paul expressed this on the flip side of the coin in Colossians chapter one, verse three. We give thanks to God, as he writes to the Colossians, praying always for you, there it is, because of Paul having experienced the real love of Jesus in him and for him, he's able to express real love to others because of Jesus's love for them. He says in verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have for all the saints. All the saints, all the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? The people of God, the children of God, the church. So do you love who Jesus loves? Because to be in the light, 1 John 1, 6, is to live in the same manner as Jesus lived. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he says it, he starts to describe what this manner worthy of their calling looks like with all humility and gentleness, with patience, show, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Showing tolerance for one another in love is to say, I tolerate someone because of love, not, dis not in spite of it. Oftentimes we confuse that. We think patience is just waiting. Patience is waiting patiently, calmly, contently. Showing tolerance as Jesus shows tolerance is not <sighs> fine, it's putting up with because you love the person more than the issue it is at hand. See, Jesus didn't follow fame with all humility. And he lived with self-control and a marathon level of long-suffering. Marathon level. That word patience here means marathon, which is not a one-time event. It is consistently and for all of us who've done any running or hiking or walking for long distance, you know after a while, it doesn't feel good. But you know its end result is precious. So Jesus put up with others, showing tolerance for one another. That word means to bear with or put up with others, and this is why, because of 
his unconditional affection for them. He, he bore with them. It wasn't, oh, come on, Dad, when do, when, when do I get to go home? I'm tired of dealing with these people. We see throughout scriptures, he would go, oh, how long? How long? And then in Luke 9, 41, after sign, feeling just like, how long will, you, will I live with you before you get it? Right after that, he heals someone. He put up with us because he loves us. It's the love that motivates. And being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Jesus determined, diligence means determined, hard work, to guard harmony. He was determined to guard the harmony. So when his 12 were bickering with each other, posturing for position, peacocking, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? The sons of thunder, their mama had to come out and say, Jesus, can my sons be at your right and your left? Can they be your right hand guys? When that was going on, he guarded the harmony. He corrected his own guys, sometimes pretty sternly, like Peter was all too familiar with. But he did it under the influence of the Holy Spirit, not under the influence of spirits, if you catch my drift. And Jesus connected with people. Here we're looking at the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Jesus connected with his people, Israel. He came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He connected with his own people, from a quietly composed and peaceful posture. And that, that is what attracted so many people. He didn't come like the other rabbis, speaking an intellectual word, but that he expounded on all the things that they have to do, that they can't do, that they come up short of. He came with a calm and peaceful disposition. And it was attractive. He spoke with authority because he didn't come like the other teachers. He came from personal experience with the Father. This is why many were drawn to him, but it is also why others hated him. So that's why if you are walking in the light of God's word, letting the love of his spirit fill and flood you, we cannot be surprised when others hate us for that very thing. Now the world pressures us, on the other hand, to pursue popularity. Give in to your desire. Give up, give up on others. If there's someone that gets in the way of you loving yourself, man, you just kick them to the curb because that, that person's not good for you. How many of us were good for Jesus when he came, though? He didn't kick me to the curb. He was long-suffering. He put up with Jacob Barksdale, not out of exasperation, but out of love. The world says give up. Kick them to the curb when they get in your way of taking care of yourself. The world says, follow the voices of media's influencers and embrace the influence of substances. The world pressures us that the only way to connect with others and succeed in this life is to get caught up in the hustle of ambition. I hear that word more and more, especially on social media. You need a, need a side hustle? You're working here, but you want to make some extra cash? Here's some great effective side hustles. Man, it's just work, 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 drive, 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 all for money, money, money. But what do we say? We're going to see here in 1 John, verse 15 of chapter 2. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, Jesus' ways are not like ours. Jesus' goals are not ours. But his love is true and his light is power. That's your first point if you're taking notes. The love of God grows in clarity. This new commandment increases. Again, like the sun, when it first breaks the horizon and continues to rise, we start to gain greater clarity, more definition to our life as his love grows, not just information, which is why I've said in the past two Sundays, knowledge puffs up with pride, but love edifies, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Love, true love. Now look at verse 12 with me. John continues and says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Stop there. We need to remember, and again, I would encourage you, I was just sharing with Les this morning. Man, 1 John is just so much bigger than I have time on a Sunday. So truly, you know how long-winded I can be, and there's a lot of stuff that I've shared. That's truly just the tip of the iceberg of the things that he has just dumped into me and on me. There's so much in this. And so I pray that as you read this, if there are things that stand out to you, that encourage you, that strike you, that when you leave this morning, you wouldn't just close this and leave it in the lost and found. Now, I'm not saying that. <laughs> you know, some of you are like, oh. I'm not trying to call out anyone who has left their Bible. Like Sister said, we, we've got more than one Bible, chances are. My point is, is if there's something that has struck you, I would encourage you the rest of this week to just dwell on that. Think about it. Talk to him about it. There's so much more here to unpack than we have time to do together. So we also need to remember that this letter was written to be circulated among all the churches. This wasn't to one church. This was to the church. Not one fellowship, not one gathered assembly, but the whole church. And as I love how Rick put it, this was written. So much of what we read here in the Bible was written to a different audience. Much of it written to people thousands of years before our time. Written, though, for our benefit. This, though, was written to you and I. It wasn't just written to the church of John's day. It was written to the church, us. Just as Jesus prayed in John 17. He didn't just pray for those with him who believed in him, but those who would come to believe in him through the testimony of those who were with him at that time. This letter is for us. It is to be consumed. It is to be applied to personally because it is a personal letter for all of us. And if it's not personal, yours and my faith, like I've said, is just a textbook of morality. We're going through, okay, got that. I have a grasp of that. Okay, check, check, check. This, this letter cannot be a textbook of morality. This letter has to be reality, not just a list of morality. To sum up what John is saying to the church, and, and before I sum this up, I listened to Rick's teachings on this because there's a lot here. I'm going, well, what did he say when, he, when we went through this with him? And 
what do these other theologians say? There are things here that we're gonna look at and I'm gonna sum up concisely that Rick takes time to expound on in greater detail. And I would encourage you, if you have time this week, to go read that also, or to go listen to that on the podcast because there's so much here. But there's something different that God has placed on my heart to focus on for this morning than what the Lord impressed on Rick's heart some years back. All that to say, I'll sum up what Rick takes more time to expound on. First of all, you're precious and forgiven because of who God is. He says here in verse 12, I'm writing to you little children. That word little children is technion, like little lamb. It's not the picture of a baby, just like the word new is not the picture of something brand new. Little children implies precious children. So no matter how big and old and strong and smart my son and daughter get, in my heart, they'll be my little children. Not that they're little, but that they're precious to me. The way a newborn baby is precious. You and I are precious to the Lord. And we are forgiven once and for all. And if there's any of us who are struggling with our salvation, we need to remember that his sacrifice was once and for all, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But why? Why are we precious to him? Why are we forgiven? Because of who God is. It says here, for his name's sake, Isaiah 43, 25, for his name's sake. And if you weren't here Wednesday, and you haven't listened to it online, there was something that our brother Jim shared that <laughs> out of Esther chapter eight that stood out to me. It was, a, it was a great revelation, practical demonstration of what we read here. For his name's sake, we're precious. For his name's sake, we're forgiven. And when Esther gives her husband, the king, Ahasuerus, a revelation of what's come to light, against her and her people, and really against him and his kingdom, he gives her the authority to do what must be done to right the wrong. And how does he do it? He gives her his signet ring, and he says, you can do all this in my name. It was for his namesake that these things were done. Esther chapter eight, verse eight. You have, he says here to the fathers, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. So we have personal knowledge of God because we have believed in him from the beginning of our faith because he is from the beginning. And you have already overcome Satan and his domain of darkness. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Because we've come to know to know the only one sent from God, that is Jesus the Christ. We have overcome Satan. Far too many of us, and myself, man, I dealt with this a lot in my teen years, and I still deal with it from time to time. We don't feel like overcomers, we feel like we're overwhelmed. But that's not what he says. For those of us who've been born again, we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. Through Christ, who loves us, forgave us. So what was the first reason for John's letter again? It was to ensure confidence for the believer. In John's gospel, it was so that we would know who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the promised Holy One. 
But John's first letter here to the church is not so that they would come to know him. He says, you already know him. It's so that you can have confidence in Christ. And I, I emphasize that because I think the reason I know for myself I've lacked in confidence is without even knowing it, without even realizing it, I've started to place my confidence in myself, how godly I'm living. But like Paul said, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I think I said this last week, the one thing I see Jesus marvel at throughout the Gospels, Jesus didn't marvel at Peter when he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion who said to Jesus, you say it and it's enough. You don't have to go with me. You just say it and I know it's done. To the Syrophoenician woman who continued to plead with Jesus when he said some pretty bold things to her that might make the rest of us tuck tail and walk away in shame and self-pity, she continued to press, recognizing who he is and recognizing, you could say, who she's not. But she continued to press him because she had faith in who he is and what he would do. She trusted not only in his power to do the impossible, she trusted in his heart to do the impossible for her because of his goodness. The reason for this letter is to confirm the believer's confidence. And that is something that I think that's why he's been pressed on my heart, this theme for today's teaching. He wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to be confident, but not in ourselves. The moment we look at ourselves is the moment we start to sink in the, in the storms and the waves. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. You're forgiven because he's good, not because you are. Psalm 103, 12 through 13. You don't know about God. You have come to know him personally. You're not fighting to conquer Satan and his schemes. You already have. You already have because you've trusted in the power of Jesus who's disarmed the powers of this darkness. These aren't stages also of spiritual growth. I love that Rick taught on this. There are a number of folks who, who kind of applied this in their commentaries. But if, this is, if these are stages for spiritual growth, then why do we go from little children to fathers back to young men? Remember, this isn't to one person, and John doesn't go, well, to you over here, and then to you over here, and then to you over here. This is to the church. All of us can apply all three of these positions within the family of God to our life personally. God doesn't just call us to live this way. He came personally to show us the way. See, this is what's interesting is we see Jesus in these verses. And again, I would urge you to go listen to Rick's teaching on this. It's uh, 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 17. Because as Rick says at the end, Man, it just fills your heart with love for Jesus. You're just, at the end of listening to it, I'm like, you're so good, Jesus. Jesus revealed, he is the exemplary definition of what we've seen here. Jesus knows the Father, John 10, 15. And the Father raised Jesus out of death, Psalm 16, verse 10, because he would not forsake his anointed to undergo decay. Because Jesus is God's beloved, Mark 9, 7. On the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are standing there, and in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is transformed, and they see him for who he truly is. And Peter, of course, being impetuous like he is, gets out and goes, let's build, set up some tents, and he's trying to do all this and trying to fulfill something, 
and God the Father booms out of heaven, this is my son, my beloved, and then he says with an exclamation mark, listen to him, <laughs> saying to Peter, listen, Linda, <laughs> be quiet and listen to him, if you know that social media reference. And then Jesus conquered the devil and darkness, Colossians 2.15. He defeated and disarmed the powers of darkness. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we read John writing to the church. So it's not that, little children, you're just not as, I mean, you're precious, but you're not as far along in your faith as fathers or young men. First of all, again, we don't see this in the correct order. We see children, fathers, young men. It should be children, young men, fathers. The devil's defeat and our security are once and for all. I said that just a minute ago. So if you have been born again into his marvelous light, then you and I don't have to wonder or deal with insecurity or self-doubt over whether or not we're saved. If we have believed in our heart and confessed him as our Lord and Savior, he has purchased us with his own life's blood and what he has done is once and for all, done and done, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. And that's the second point here. Fellowship with Christ confirms our character. It con our fellowship with him confirms who we are. John 16, we're talking about overcoming, right? Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, so then me, you may have peace. Jesus revealed himself to us so that we would have peace. Think about the context Jesus said that to his guys, knowing that within hours he was going to die on the cross. Jesus said that to his guys in the context of an oppressive government weighing heavier and heavier on his people. Jesus said this in the context of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the Herodians who continued to pour burdens on them of how they needed to live in order to be successful in this life. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, in the world you have tribulation. Little T, little tribulation. But take courage, be of good cheer. Why? Why, Jesus? This sounds pretty hard, dark, gloomy. He says, I have overcome the world. Our overcoming Satan and his powers does not lie within us, but his spirit who is in us. We don't look from within, we look up. And fortunately, he's given us the seal of his promise to us as overcomers. Now let's finish verse 13 through 14. John says at the end of verse 13, I have written to you, children. Notice don't gloss over this. He says, I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. And now he says, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. As a legitimate child of God, we will know God's discipline. And I don't have the verse for this, but I believe many of you know this reference I'm speaking of. If we are disciplined by God, it may be unpleasant in the time being, 
but what it yields is great, significant, and, and, and a treasure that's everlasting. And you know, I remember growing up, <laughs> I think I've said this before, my, uh, one of my neighborhood friends was doing something that my brother and I shouldn't have been doing, and we knew better, but because our friend was doing it, and he was a year older than us, we went ahead and did it. Our dad called us from the porch, yeah. <laughs> You're already smiling. You know where I'm going with this. He calls us, boys, and we come up on the porch. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, is he serious? I thought he could see what we were doing. I'm kind of like, dad, why do you make us confess what we've done wrong when you've already seen it? Interesting. And, and he goes, don't do that. And we're like, well, Alan was doing it. <laughs> and my dad goes, is Alan my son? <laughs> I'm not Alan's dad. I'm your dad. And I'm telling you, okay. And it was for our benefit. He didn't correct us to condemn us. He corrected us actually to build us up so that we would walk in what is right because it's beneficial to us. All that to say the word children here is no longer technion. I can't remember what the word is, but it starts with a P and it's in the Greek. All that to say the word children now implies someone submitted under the authority. Someone submitted under authority. And so looking here at my notes, as a legitimate child of God, you know God's discipline. You possess, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. We possess the power of his knowledge. And I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We're legitimate children of God because we continue to conquer through him. You have conquered him and you continue to conquer him. How? It says here at the end of verse 14, the word of God abides in you. Go back to Mark Harris's um, analogy or metaphor. Abiding is like a child in the womb. We feed on him. That's what it looks like to abide in God's word. And when we do, we have the power of God's word, Hebrews 4.12, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Active, cutting, dividing, dividing between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, between the soul and the spirit, joint and marrow. I mean, his word divides and that gives clarity to us, and it gives us confidence when we abide in him. I know growing up with my dad, being in his presence gave me confidence. Now, if I did what was wrong, <laughs> I tend to want to shrink away. But I knew if my dad had my back, I didn't care who was coming at me. Because my dad's got my back. My dad's going to take care of this. <laughs> going into the army... Again, I think another thing I've said before, people wondered, people asked, are you nervous about the drill sergeants? I'm yelling at you and whatnot. I said, no way. Have you met my dad? <laughs> like, they can't do anything to me. They can yell at me, big deal. My dad can kill me. <laughs> my dad had an authority in my life that both made me accountable and gave me confidence. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a child of the light. To have a knowledge, though, of God personally. Again, God not only teaches us these things, but he came down to show us how it works. Jesus submitted to the Father to the point of death. Philippians 2.8. I was talking with Jeremy. Um, feels weird to say intern, because I've known him for a lot of years, and he's like a, like a younger brother to me. 
but for all intents and purposes, the intern. Jeremy, my bro, we were talking about this and he wanted to just FaceTime with, with me really quick and he wanted to share this with me in Philippians 2.8 that the word, when, when uh, Paul writes that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that word grasped means robbed, which is interesting. It's not just apprehended, it's taken like a thief to seize it. Jesus did not regard equality with God, even an option on the table to, to be taken. And yet, that is exactly what Satan tried to get Jesus to do. You're the son of God? Turn the bread, turn the stone into bread. You're the son of God, right? So all these kingdoms, they're yours. All you gotta do is bow down to me. Jesus looked at Satan knowing my equality with God isn't even something I can be, I'm not gonna take it. It's going to be given, which is what's beautiful about this. These children, these fathers, these young men, all of who they are and everything they have has been given to them. They've been recipients of the grace of God. Jesus knows the fathers so well as we see these fathers in verse 14 that they are indistinguishable from each other. Jesus said in uh, John 14, seven, when Philip said, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus went, have you been with me so long that you still don't know who I am? You still don't? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. As spiritual fathers, as we continue to grow with him, walk with him, know him personally through experience in life, according to the light of his word, we look more and more like him. When people see us, they're gonna see our father. When people would call growing up, call us on our home phone, back in the days when people had home phones, I miss those days. And my brother and I would answer in high school and they, especially my grandparents, hello? And there'd be a pause. Is this Stephen? No, it's grandma, <laughs> or grandma, it's Jacob. <laughs> it's me. I'm confused about myself. Anyway, we were so indistinguishable from our dad because our voices sound so much the same. And our mannerisms become similar. These fathers know Jesus this way. And they know him, and we've come to know God because of the example Jesus has given us in that he was so united in a personal knowledge with the Father that to see Jesus is to see God. Jesus knows the Father so well they're indistinguishable from each other. Jesus abides, like these young men, in God's word that he submitted to it instead of taking advantage of his position, as I shared a moment ago. He submitted to it. It's funny, Satan goes to God's word to try and entice Jesus. Hey, the word says this, the word says this. And almost everything Satan says is true from scripture. So how come it wasn't true? Because it was set out of a false motivation, a wrong heart. It was all about the self. Satan was trying to entice Jesus with the very thing that Satan fell prey to, himself. He fell in love with himself. But because Jesus abided in God's word, what does he do? He combats a very subtle and very strategic scheme of Satan you, who used the word and Jesus did it using the word in truth, not in knowledge. Satan has information of the word. He studies this. He knows this. 
but he doesn't have personal knowledge of who this is. The word of God, by denying himself, fulfilled the word of God. That is ironic. Again, listen to Rick's teaching. He does a great job expounding on this. And because the word of God submitted to the written word of God, he was able to defeat the devil and his deceitful plans. You can read about that in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. All this to say, if we walk like Jesus in the light of God's word, Psalm 119, 105, we live as God's kids, his children. Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What did John open up with in this passage? Starting verse seven and eight. Commandment, the commandment. What's the commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might and to love each other even as Jesus has loved us. And we come to understand the love of God when we abide by God's word. His word is a lamp, his word is a light. It is our corrector and our edifier. It's our encourager, our comforter. This is the law. When Jesus referred to that in Matthew 24, 11, he wasn't talking about Roman law or the Sanhedrin's laws, or the Pharisaical laws based on traditions or man's best idea. When he said lawlessness increased, and so the love of many grew cold, it was the law of God. How do we walk? How do we walk by the law? We walk according to his word, and his word is Jesus. How do we overcome the oppressive darkness in our world and the tidal waves of temptations that come against us? 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. What has Rick said since the beginning of John's gospel as we've been studying? You can't get in unless you're born again. There will be no, you won't even come up to the threshold of God's house if you haven't been born again. We cannot have hope to overcome the darkness we live in without being a born again in Jesus. And this is the victory, John continues to write in chapter five, verse four. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The understanding is our faith in him. Not just, I have faith that things will get better. That's stupid. It is, it's dumb. And I hear it all the time, just have faith. I'm like, I'm waiting for the punchline. Faith in what? Because if it's faith in me, you just made me more de depressed. I sure don't wake up in the morning going, look at this. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, Cam comes into the bathroom. I'm in the shower. She's like, do you want me to turn the lights on? No, thanks. I don't need to see more of this. <laughs> That's your third point, though. If fellowship with Christ confirms our character, we're affirmed as we abide in Jesus. We're affirmed as we abide in Jesus. 1 John 2.15. How are we doing on time? Whoop. All right. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This word world John writes about isn't people. It's the word cosmos, and it refers to a system, 
the system of the down, if you know the song, the system that we as humanity have lived in, this present world, which is under this present darkness. All this to say, it's interesting as we go through this that John writes to the corporate fellowship of the followers of Jesus. My fellowship influences my faith. Now, we are not called to live like hermits separate from the world. But we also, if we've grown up in the church, we know. We know the cliche that's based off of a number of scriptures in the New Testament. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. What am I saying here? Who are you, who's your inner circle of friends? I've heard this many times, and I've begun to say it. Look at teens, and I've said this to some of them. I go, look at your closest circle of friends, and if you continue with the group of people you're with, that will be who you will become in the next five to 10 years. And that goes both ways, good and bad, right and wrong. Who are our inner circle of friends? James 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, you don't know that the friend, you don't know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Like, should this be a, a new thing? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are doing way too many things as a church to try and commandeer this culture for the sake of Christ. And what I mean by that is become relevant. Do things as the world does them. Still to this day, the bridge doesn't advertise. We don't put a billboard out. And that is not because this fellowship is better than all the others. It's because when people hear the word of God, that's the voice of the Father, they come. Jesus, talk about... <laughs> Talk about going totally contrary to all the ideas that we think are gonna build up our reputation. Jesus was born of a no-name family from a no-name place where nobody cares about, where people think nothing good comes from, and it was prophesied that the Messiah, the Holy One, would come into the land of the Gentiles. Where did all the Pharisees and great Jewish teachers hang out in? Jerusalem. Where did Jesus go? The ungodly people. And it says, a great light has shone in their darkness, in the land of darkness. But he came bearing the word of God. That's what's relevant. Not how we bring God's word. Just like Jesus, who exemplifies verses 12 through 14, Satan epitomizes verses 15 through 16. Let me ask you a question. Who's your daddy? John 8, verse 43, Jesus is having conversation with the Pharisees. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? We're listening to you right now. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, Bobby Boucher. You're of the, you're of the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He, verse 47, who is of God, hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. 
We identify with the voices and attitudes we're fond of. How fond are we of our Heavenly Father? You can go through Galatians chapter five and see the difference between those who live according to the deeds of the flesh and those who live according to the power of the Spirit. You judge a tree by its fruit. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The word lust is immoral craving. And the word flesh literally is sinful nature. So when you read flesh, you're not, you're not speaking of your physical body, you're speaking of your naturally born sinful nature. Weast, a theologian, explains that this is the passionate craving that comes from our sinful nature. This lust is a craving, a craving for our sinful nature. Junk food and alcohol, drugs and debauchery, they feel good at first, and all of us in this fellowship have had some sampling of some or all of these. But we know it never satisfies. It doesn't strengthen you or I. It doesn't build us up. Matter of fact, it leaves us hurting, weaker, sick, and empty. All you have to do is look at, uh, go downtown and see the unfortunate souls who were addicted to fentanyl. They shoot up on it, and it feels good at first, and we all know the high goes away. And then what? Then they're worse than when they first started. So what do they do? They seek it. They seek the next high. Side note, this is something that concerns me within the church, and I mean the church today. There are a lot of folks who are promoting an experience with God rather than just knowing him. And I'm not downplaying experiencing God. I've already said that we need to. Without experiencing him personally, this turns into a textbook and not a letter. But there are some, I just saw, again, on social media, and I'm, I'm not saying social media is bad any more than money's bad, but it is the root of all kinds of evil. And I see a lot of folks pop up on my Instagram account as I'm going through the reels, and this one pastor, I won't even say where or what kind of church, is encouraging people to come and experience God. I don't hear Jesus' name once. There's no mention of his word. They don't even say his spirit. It's just come experience. And it's all experiential. Feel this. If you feel this way, come here and we'll help you feel this way. Feel. Experience. And I have heard for a lot of years, people, for, people totally confuse the difference between wisdom and experience. Experience is experience. And we got people living downtown homeless in Seattle, Oak Harbor, Anacortes, who have lots of radical experiences. But that doesn't mean they have wisdom. Now, I'm not disparaging the homeless. There are some folks who are down and out, and that's no fault of their own. But I will go out on a limb and say, by and large, a lot of the folks who are dealing with that in our country today is not because of the reasons people were homeless during the Great Depression. Point is, we are not here. Jesus didn't say, come to me and experience a miracle. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. We experience Jesus. But if all we're coming, all we're seeking Jesus for is the next high or the next meal, we miss him entirely. And it's, that's what concerns me is we are turning 
faith in Jesus into a fleshly endeavor. Rick taught in 1 John that lust is interchangeable with coveting. So when we look at the lust of the eyes, <clears throat> it's the opposite of thankfulness, which is interesting because didn't lust just lead us in that for communion? Lusting with the eyes is the opposite of thankfulness. If you're torn with anxiety, and a lot of us are these days, then worship Jesus. Start your day worshiping him. Bring your request to him because he wants you to. But do it with a thankful heart, not with a begrudging or demanding heart. And he promises that Jesus will guard your heart and your mind. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. See, we can't know Jesus' peace when we're coveting and lusting. They can't go hand in hand. There's a lot of folks who are loving life, but they are without peace. And they're confused because the more they get and the more they pursue and the more they fight for and the more they seek, the less they have. And they're confused because this only comes through the person of Jesus. James, or as Rick calls Yaakov, painted a picture of what the boastful pride of life looks like. Here in James 4, 13, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. The housing market of 2008 is a result of the boastful pride of life. We got too big for our britches. We were boasting in ourselves, and look at where it got us. And we continue to do that as a culture, as a world, as a society. Don't boast in yourself. Believe in Jesus. Look at verse 17 with me. Again, the things I just covered here, Rick does much more in more detail, so I'd encourage you to check that out. Verse 17, he goes on and says, the world is passing away and it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, if you think I'm gonna camp out and talk about eschatology and the Antichrist, you're wrong. I'm not gonna focus on that. Again, go listen to Rick's teaching because he does a great expose on this and expounds on it. I'll touch on it, but I don't think that's the focus for this morning. And I don't think that's the focus he wants us in in this present darkness that we live in. The phrase passing away is present tense. That means it's currently happening and continuous. We live in a present darkness that is currently passing away. Think about that. Does it feel like it's passing away? Feels like it's growing, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like it's going away. It feels like it's growing. When someone's passing away, we don't say, who knows how long it'll take. Think about this. When someone we know is passing away, if you've watched someone on hospice, by the time they're on hospice, it's a matter of hours, days, sometimes weeks, but there are different levels of hospice. When I talk about this, I mean folks who are truly on their deathbed. We know it's just a matter of time, and so family and friends come from all over to be with them in their last moments because it could happen at any point. 
That's the phrase that he uses here talking about the darkness. It could happen at any point. We're that, that's how close we are. The darkness is passing away. The darkness is on hospice. Think about that. The body is in its final death throes when someone's in hospice. It could happen at any, po- any moment. And again, theologian Wiest says it like this. The picture is that of the darkness of sin and unbelief passing by as a parade goes by the street. All parades have an end. So will someday soon the parade of Satan's hosts. Now, if that doesn't get you all kinds of jacked up, stoked on fire, I don't know what will. Think about that. Man, right now I get goosebumps like, I am an overcomer. And you know what? I don't have to fight the fight. It's already been done. All I have to do is stand and resist. We look at the armor of God, right? Shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our belts, our loins are girded with truth. Interesting thing my wife shared a couple weeks ago. Again, man. Ladies, you may not be able to get up on a pulpit, but you have an incredible influence into men's lives who are called by God to be teachers. Now, my wife does teach, but in our staff meeting, she talked about something she realized. I didn't know this, and I was kind of like, wow, I was impressed with my wife. I'm gonna geek out with you a little bit on history. I'm a historian by education, and so when my wife talked about Roman battle gear, I was like, okay, I know this, I know this. I know this, I know this. And then she said something, I went, whoa, I didn't know that. (laughs) Now, I haven't gone back to verify it, but I can tell you having read and remembering things in college that what she's talking about is true. The breastplate that the Roman soldiers wore was heavy. The shield that they, they took was heavy. It was wood embossed with leather. It was soaked in water, which is why Paul talks about it, holding the shield of faith so that you're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, Satan. That's because when the Roman soldiers held their shield and flaming arrows were shot, the arrows would go out because they hit a water shield. Going back to the breastplate, as we're looking here at being conquerors, overcomers, our breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, think about that, righteousness of God, The glory of God throughout the Old Testament is described as incredibly heavy, so heavy that the elders had to leave the tabernacle because the glory of God had come on and filled it up. The glory of God was so heavy they had to get out. The righteousness of God is heavy, and that's why we go, how can I be righteous? I can't do this. Exactly, and that's when my wife says something that blew my mind. You know what's interesting about the Roman outfit? The breastplate was actually held up by their belt. The truth held the righteousness. You catch what I'm saying? This should give us hope and encouragement because the darkness is on hospice. Because our righteousness is held up by his truth. Because it's his righteousness So if, when John writes this in verse 18, children, it is the last hour, if it was the last hour almost 2,000 years ago, where are we at on the prophetic clock? We are moments, minutes, some would say seconds, seconds 
before the darkness of this world dies. We're in the final countdown. The final countdown. Okay. Again, I'd encourage you to listen to Rick's teachings on these things because I don't have time to expound on all of it right now. But look at verse 19. And we're gonna go through these last several verses quickly because there's one general big point I wanna drive home to, to you guys that has been driven home to me. In verse 19, they went out from us. John the Apostle is talking about those who are part of their fellowship who have now left because, he says, they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. When you think remain, think abide, abide. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not of us. Side note, if someone leaves the fellowship at the bridge, that doesn't mean they don't know Jesus. They might be somewhere else. So again, we're just a fellowship of the church. This was a letter circulated to the church, made up of congregations of fellowship. He goes on in verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the, fa- whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Stop there for a second. I don't want us to be discouraged when we see people in our fellowship leave. Because, again, this isn't the church. But don't be discouraged also in that same vein when people leave the fellowship, a.k.a. the church. You know why? Because it is a sign. It's a sign that the night isn't overcoming us, but that it's almost gone. When children of darkness leave, it's because they can't stand under the glory of the light. Now, we pray for them, but remember, their salvation is not based on us. It's not up to us. Like John, we're just supposed to deliver the message and pray for them and love them. But when we, my point in all of this is, when we see this darkness growing, mounting, and it is, the darkness in this present world is growing in as much as death is growing in a person's body as they approach passing away. The divinity of Jesus as the Christ is dividing the deceived from the disciples. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you don't need to feel insecure or doubt with dread about your life in this present world. Romans 8, verse 14. This is why we don't have any reason to dread. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Again, how do we know? His Spirit testifies to us. Les has said it before. People go, I don't know if I'm saved. Pregnant women, when you're pregnant, you know you're pregnant. There have been times I have asked my wife, and she says it to me too in a different way sometimes, do you love me? All she has to say is, yes, I love you. Okay, good enough. 
I may not feel like she loves me, but usually when I struggle with that, it's because I'm looking at me. Does, does Cam still love me? Because I think about all my insecurities and shortcomings. But her love for me is not based on how good I look on a given day or what I'm able to do. She loves me for who I am. That's the love of the Father. So if you're down one day, it's okay. His love doesn't go down. It grows with time, like the sun when it first crests the horizon and continues to rise in the sky. He goes on and says in Romans 8, verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Look at verse 24 with me. As for you, Everything that we've read here, let that abide in you. Feed on this, know this, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This verse alone says abide three times. In verse 24, he says abide three times. That's pretty significant. Remember, again, to have fellowship is to abide. What we have heard and learned of Jesus and from Jesus abides in us. It's something that grows over time. Christ's love confirms our fellowship with God. Abiding affirms his light in us. So if we're lacking confidence, it might be because we're not abiding in him. And if that's the case, don't feel condemned. He's pointing that out, Jacob, to correct you to get back in. To step back in, to live in the light. Look at verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. You may feel frail. You might be frustrated. You might be feeble. But you have the promise of life. You have the promise of life, which means you and I aren't making the promise. We're receiving the promise. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I wake up this morning, I don't feel like I'm a holy one of God. I feel very unholy. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You woke up early enough to be here this morning. Look at verse 26. These things, John says, I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Don't let their deceit confuse you. Abide in his truth. As it's been said many times, you all know, people who can identify a counterfeit are able to do so because they know the real one really well. Part of our confusion is because we're not abiding in his truth enough. Or we confuse him, who is truth, with, quote, our truth. Well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. Well, guess what? If we live by each other's truths, we're not gonna be able to hold up righteousness because we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. God has said these things written for us to read today so that we have absolute confidence that we have his love, that we possess the power of his light. It's all him focused. And we do it together, which is another beautiful thing of the Roman legion. A Roman legion wasn't one guy. Thousands in rank. And they were, they were hardened by training trained in this. Did you know that they would take, I think this is every day if I remember the historians that I read about, they would go out and march for 20, or not 20 hours, for 20 miles every day. 
carrying their shield, which sometimes could be upwards of 80 pounds. Is it a wonder they were able to stop the barbarians, defeat these giant Gauls? They weren't big, but they were strong, but their strength was linked together. And so it wasn't my truth, it was it is the truth that girds all of us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the last part of 7, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Even struck down, but we're not destroyed. Nothing can kill you. Nothing can defeat you because it has already been defeated by Jesus. Stand in that confidence. Rest in his word. Look at verse 28. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. You already know this. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, <coughs> you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of God. It's been said that the night is darkest right before the dawn. Now, that might be a line out of a Batman movie, okay? But it does inspire because it reflects the reality. We all know this to be true. It's the darkest right before the light comes. What do we get from abiding in his word? With his abiding word in us, we have confidence for our future, both present and for what is to come. When we abide in this, not when we abide in this. This. You might be like, yeah, but my Bible's on my phone. You get the picture. Not when we're abiding in the news of this world, but when we abide in the word of his world, his kingdom of light. That transforms us. It's not just a false hope. He is the prime reality. What he says in heaven will be done on earth. We are earthly good when we are heavenly minded. And I'm already into chapter three, but we're not looking at that today. I need to wrap this up. We know this world system will be conquered when Jesus comes again, Isaiah 9, 7. And if we have to be, I'm sorry, yes, if we have to be born again, John 3, 3, and we have to receive glorified bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, in order to enter the kingdom of God, because this is why our corrupted hearts and our corrupted bodies can't enter the incorruptible, then what does that mean for the world? Jesus is coming back, and he's gonna set up a government of peace that will increase and grow and has no end. But the world you and I live in has to go at some point. He sets up a thousand-year rule and reign, but then it's over on this earth. His kingdom doesn't end, but this earth will come to an end. Again, if our hearts have to be born again, and when the church is caught up, our, we, we are given imperishable bodies. We put on the imperishable. We get rid of the perishable. All, of be, all because of sin, 
then what does that say of our world system, our created world, the universe we live in? It's been corrupted by sin. What do you do with cancer? You cut it out. This world, this created natural world cannot be saved. It will at some point burn up and be thrown away, rather thrown away and burned up. So what does that mean? 1 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. By the way, the day of the Lord begins with the start of the tribulation, Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24.9. It's also called Jacob's distress, Jeremiah 37. This world that we live in is quickly approaching its darkest hour of the night. So do you know what that means? With all the darkness we see growing, it means that the morning dawn is that close too. So don't be discouraged or despaired when you hear or see the darkness. If you see more darkness, if you see it getting darker, that should actually ironically give you hope because that means the light is that close. It's closer now than it's ever been. <clears throat> As the morning star rises to his throne, the day will only grow brighter until... This whole created universe will pass away and a completely new, incorruptible, amazing one will be made, just like John saw in Revelation 21, verse 1. Now, in Luke 21, verse 28, Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, they're taking place right now, straighten up and lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, behold the fig tree and all its trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. The fig tree is Israel. What about the rest of the trees? All the nations. They put out their leaves. Israel became, sprang back to life on more, May 14th, 1948. And we've seen a bunch of new nations born as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union. Interesting. I believe the church is in the summer season and fall is just around the corner. This is why John says in verse eight that the darkness is passing away. But remember, it cannot always be night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep like others do, but let us be alert and sober. Romans 13, 11, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. All these things describe our world right now. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, no advantage, no possibility for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Again, I need to, I need to remind some of us that what I'm sharing with you this morning was because of what the Lord gave me as a result of being in staff meeting this Wednesday. Now, I could go on and on, but I have to wrap up. 
And I wanna wrap up giving you guys some things that were shared in our staff meeting that apply to what we're seeing here. The present darkness you and I live in is passing away. It is getting darker. It is getting bigger, which means it's about, it's about morning time. The sun's about to rise. S-O-N. Dean, when we were talking, likened our darkness to a sand in an hourglass. You get an hourglass, you flip it over, and at first, down below, it's pretty small. But as time goes by, more and more sand builds up, builds up, grows, grows, until you got this little mountain of sand at the bottom. It's a sign that time is almost up. As the darkness builds, that means time is almost up. If you've been born again, you have reason to hope. It's almost over. We've already overcome. Now, Cam shared this with us at staff. When her parents would take weekend trips to go see family, this is when they lived in North Idaho and they'd come over here to Western Washington. They'd pack the kids in early in the morning, you know, like when it's still dark, 3 a.m. or whatever. They'd pack the kids in and the kids could go to sleep. So they'd miss most of the drive. It'd be a quiet, pleasant drive. But my wife fought so hard to stay awake. You know why? She'd watch in the darkness, and as time went by, she got excited when the sun broke. You know why? Because that was an indication that they were almost there. So when it got super dark, she knew internally, she's like, it's really dark. That means it's about morning is around the corner. And if it's morning time, almost, that means we're gonna be with family. That's where we're at. I share all this because it is, be, it is easier and easier to get discouraged and depressed with the darkness around us. We, see, we hear about the shootings in Miami, the rise of crime in this country, the increase of lawlessness, and so therefore the decrease of love. We hear and see what's going on in Ukraine, Eastern Europe. A lot of us Bible prophecy students are like, so what's going to happen in the Middle East? What, when's this going to happen in Ezekiel 38? But our hope is not in Ezekiel 38. Our hope is in Jesus. Some theologians wonder if the church is ever even going to be around when the Ezekiel 38 war happens. And it's close. This is my last point. So worship team, if you want to come up. Prayer team, if you want to come up. My last point's kind of a long one, but our dark days are passing away because we're approaching his marvelous light. So don't grow discouraged. Abide in his truth. With the temptations of darkness getting louder, abide in his truth. His truth will hold up his righteousness in you. That will give you confidence in your fellowship with him. The more we abide in his word, the more his word will abide in us. Interesting. And so as we see these days get darker, you know what that means? Matthew 5, 16, let your little light shine so that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. When the darkness is darker, that means the light looks brighter. And people are gonna be drawn to that. We have reason to hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.
I, I know a lot of us, I know myself this morning, it's interesting, a lot of us are kind of feeling drowsy and tired, and I think sometimes my voice doesn't help, helps put people to sleep. But Jesus, I pray that we would hear your voice. Lord, the morning is just around the corner. Harvest season is almost over. You're about to call your church home. So I pray, Lord, in these final moments that we have left as a fellowship on this earth, Lord, that we would make the most of the time, that we would be bold in your truth, but we can't be bold in what we don't abide in. Encourage us to abide in you. There are many antichrists. There, the spirit of the antichrist is alive and well, but he's getting louder because he knows his time is almost up. That should give us hope. Fill us with your hope, Jesus. Help us abide in your word. Confirm our confidence in you as we come together more as the day draws near, not less. Bless us, Jesus, with your word this morning, and we thank you for it. In your name, amen.